Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Genesis chapter 5 picks up with Adam's genealogy. There are 10 names in Adam's genealogy, just like there were in Cain's. In verse 1, we're told that humans were created in the image and likeness of God. But Seth, here in verse 2, Seth is made in the image and likeness of Adam. This reminds us that something has fundamentally shifted. Now that human beings have used their free will to rebel, there's something different about their nature. Seth will possess at the same time the image and likeness of God, the potential to be what God wanted in the created order, but he now will also have sin as part of his nature, and he will have the potential for the greatest evil as well. The names Enoch and Lamech appear both in Cain's genealogy and Adam's. We don't think they're the same people. It's just the same names. The ages of the people in Adam's genealogy remind us that among the ancient world, they believe that the pre-flood ancestors lived extraordinarily long lives. There are a lot of theories to explain this. It could be that the numbers given are just symbolic, that they're theological, that they use a different numbering system for how they calculated years and age. One suggestion that I find particularly interesting is the suggestion that the more humans become polluted by sin, the more the world becomes full of sin, the the more limited the breath of God within them actually is. So there's an inverse relationship to the breath of God giving us life and making us living beings and sin, which are the, wage, the wages of sin or death, Romans tells us. So um, sin is working at killing us while the breath of God is keeping us alive. And the two struggle with each other to give us our lifespan. In verse 5, we have the very first obituary in human history. The first person dies of natural causes. Now, we've already had somebody die because Abel dies at the hands of Cain, but that's murder. Here we have somebody passing away at the end of a lifespan. This, however, has been anticipated since Genesis 2 verse 17. Notice the cadence that becomes um, apparent here in Adam's genealogy. Um, And he died, and he died, and he died eight times. The list moves from Seth to Noah in a very formulaic fashion, and only two people get any kind of special attention. In the seventh generation, Enoch walked with God, denoting a righteous life and consistent fellowship with the Lord. Enoch also escapes the and he died. Um, he, He just was no more because God takes him. So death, which had become inevitable because of sin, is apparently not the last word. Death doesn't win. There are conditions under which we escape death. And we now believe that comes to us in Jesus Christ because we have everlasting life. In all of the names so far listed, We've only listed one child, the one through whom we're tracing the genealogy. But when we get to Noah in the 10th generation, 
the linear list splits and we get three suns here. Um, Methuselah is the longest life that is recorded not only in Adam's genealogy, but anywhere in the Bible at 969 years. That's a long time to live. The idea of 10 generations will come up again for us in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23, it says that a child of a forbidden union is excluded from the religious assembly for 10 generations, and that the Ammonites and the Moabites are disallowed for 10 generations. All right, in chapter 6, it talks about the sons of God have children with human women. Now, this is a reference to some extra-biblical stories contained in other places. There is the idea that the sons of God are angels, celestial beings, who mate with human women, and the children that they have are the Nephilim, or the race of giants that we also hear referenced in the Bible. Stories like these are contained in the Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, and on some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, all of those are authoritative, but don't rise to the level of Scripture for Ju- for the Jewish faith. Um, they are really not part of Christianity, but we hear them clearly referenced in our Scriptures, not only here in the creation stories, but we'll hear it again in some of the prophetic books, in the book of Job, in the um, minor prophet Amos, and then pick up on some of that imagery over in Revelation. So there is this idea elaborated on in the book of Enoch that when God created human beings, because he created um, multiple adult human beings who then will reproduce and have babies, that Human beings need to be guided to their full potential. Um, and so God sends 250 angels to um, shepherd them, shepherd us on that way. And that instead of doing so, they actually um, begin to get involved with the women and have children. There's also the idea that um, Samyaza, who was an angel of high rank, it may be another name for Lucifer Morningstar, which was the angel of worship who gets kicked out of heaven. We hear that referenced a little bit in Scripture. Um, actually leads a rebel sect um, of fallen angels. And now all those angels have been cast into Tartarus. 10% of their children were allowed to remain as disembodied spirits, which become demons after the flood, to tempt um, human beings. Now, all that is just background story. It's just myth and story that influences what we kind of hear referenced here. So we're explaining why we have a race of giants. We're also explaining how illicit unions are not supposed to take place. The book of Jubilees actually says that the purpose of the flood was to rid the earth of the Nephilim or of the giants of this mixture um, of people. Orthodox Judaism, however, rejects this idea completely, actually calls this whole story cursed. They believe that sons of God should be correctly um, rendered sons of noble ones or the noble sons. Um, And there is also the idea in some of Christianity that the sons of God are the righteous descendants of Seth and that the daughters of men are are the unrighteous descendants of Cain, and that they mate and create the Nephilim. So we get a lot of of stories that we just don't know um, all the information to. But at this point, God is going to limit the lifespan to 120 years in verse 2. 
In verse 5, we see that God reverses his positive appraisal of creation. This is the most emphatic expression of the human condition that we find in the entire Bible. The incidence of rebellion and wickedness that has been introduced to us in creation back in Genesis 3 has now become so pervasive that it is characteristic of the human heart. And God is sorry that he made human beings. And so his decision is to uncreate, to return things to that uncreated chaos of the waters that existed before creation back when we pick up in Genesis 1-1. The divine decree here is devastating, but it's just. I mean, it's it's the choices we made and the consequences that come. That's the way the story presents it. And yet... Unexpectedly, grace intervenes. Noah is the exception. He is approved of God. And so he stands in this gap between God's plans for annihilation to uncreate the world and between the tormented chaos that is broken because of sin. Um, When human beings sinned, we not only broke our relationship with God, we broke the world. Um, because we introduced sin to it. The justice of God requires a flood, but the grace of God provides a Noah. And so that becomes an ongoing theme that repeats throughout Scripture, that there's there's this balance between justice and mercy, um, and it's always found in the grace of God. Chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 9, verse 29, now gives us the story of Noah. He's been mentioned twice before in Adam's genealogy and then in the mitigation of wickedness. Um, And now the story is going to hone in like a spotlight and focus on him. Noah is the Old Testament ideal of piety. He has moral innocence, which is righteousness. He is accepted before God. That's he's blameless. And he has a consistent intimacy in his relationship with God, which is what is implied when it says he walked with God. In verses 11 through 22, God is going to make a total of four speeches throughout this flood narrative, and we have the first one here. Each of God's speeches are followed by Noah quietly obeying. Um, Noah is um, silent until he has actually done all that is, is said to be done. Here, God makes the very first covenant, really, um, the the covenant living, covenant living is the means of salvation from the flood. I will do this if you will do that. And so let's enter into an agreement, a covenant to have that happen. So Adam, um, Noah builds the ark made out of cypress wood, covers it in pitch so that the water can't penetrate it. And it's 30 by 50 by, th- excuse me, it is 300 by 50 by 30 cubits. A cubit's about 18 inches in length. It has three decks, only one door, and one window that we'll find out about in chapter 8, verse 6. So it's the picture of this grand, grand boat. Verses 19 through 21 tell us he takes two of every kind of animal and that they will come to him, according to verse 20. He's also to take a store of food, enough to feed both the humans and the animals. As we move into chapter 7, the narrative continues, and in verses 1 through 5, we get the second speech of God. This represents a different flood tradition. 
because now Noah is told to take seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of the unclean or non-clean animals. The thing is, the reason we know this has to be a later tradition that is added back is because what is clean and unclean has not yet been established. That comes to us much later, after the Exodus, and we, we find more about that in Leviticus. So Noah is given the timeline. There will be 40 days and nights of rain. Now, prior to this, it has not rained on the earth. The ground has been fed and flourished by streams that come up from the ground and water it. So the idea that water is going to fall from the sky is a new thing for people. And um, more than likely, people would have thought Noah had lost his mind. Um, Remember that the number 40 can be an idiom for a long time, longer than a month, but less than a year. Um, So 40 days and nights comes up multiple times in Scripture, including the fact that um, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and nights. The Israelite people wander in the desert for 40 years, so an extended period of time. In verses 6 through 10, Noah is 600 years old. There are eight human beings who go into the boat, Noah and his wife, Noah's three sons, and their wives. Um, And this tradition here in verses 6 through 10 has reverted back to a single pair of each kind of animal. In verses 11 through 16, we see that the flood is a reversal of creation that occurred in Genesis 1. There was watery chaos um, divided into the water above and the water below, then constrained to reveal land to us. And now the waters above fall and the fountains of the deep open. So water is no longer restrained. The fountains burst forth, burst forth and the, the land is covered. And so we revert to an uncreated state. Uh, it talks about two by two that the pairs um, go in and come out. It doesn't say how many pairs So the pairs go in, and God is the one who shuts the door. I think that's interesting. Verses 17 through 24, all happens as God said it would. Uh, The water is 15 cubits deep um, over the mountaintops, um, and everyone who's not inside the ark dies. And this would include animals, and uh, even a lot of the vegetation would not have thrived, but it's going to come back pretty quickly. The water continues to swell and cover the earth for 150 days. The rain only fell for 40, but the water hangs around for a lot longer. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 12, we see that God remembers Noah. It's not as though God could forget. If God is all-knowing, it's not that God somehow forgot that Noah's the only family out there in this little boat. But when it says remembers, that means that we've experienced the impetus of promise keeping to go back to our covenant commitments and keep our promise. Um, So God remembers that he has promised Noah deliverance. The narrative then turns from chaos to new creation. So it's almost as though Genesis 1-1 happens again with Noah. Um, It's a reset and a starting over. So we had the de-evolution from creation back to chaos in chapter 6, verse 9 to 7, 24. And now we will have the recreation back from chaos in 8, 1 to 9, 19. 
The mountain of Ararat is not a specific mountain, but it's a mountain region, a very mountainous area of terrain, probably in the kingdom of Uratu, um, which is near Lake Van at the convergence point of Iran, Iraq, Russia, and Turkey. Um, so the rain started in the second month on the 17th day. The boat comes to rest at Ararat in the seventh month, the 17th day. So it's been five months. The mountains begin to appear in the 10th month on the first day. So um, two and a half more months before they'll actually see the mountaintops. Noah then waits 40 more days, so another extended period of time, before he sends out a raven, and the raven never comes back. He also sends out a dove, and the dove comes back. Seven days later, he sends out the dove again, and the dove comes back with an olive leaf. So things are beginning to grow. There's enough land uncovered that trees are beginning to bloom. He waits seven more days and sends the dove out again, and the dove doesn't come back. So we see 21 days of this process. Uh, using birds to determine the proximity of land was a very common practice for sailors. The raven is a scavenger. Uh, it eats carrion or carcasses, waste. The dove is more particular in what it eats, so it's unsurprising that the raven doesn't come back the first time. In verses 13 through 19, um, on the first day of the first month, Noah removes the covering. We're not sure exactly what that is, but something about the top of the boat. Um, and he looks over the earth, and the earth looks dry, um, but it's in the process of drying. They're going to wait almost two more months to the second month, the 27th day, for the ground is dry enough for them to actually get out of the boat. Now we have the third speech of God. Um, and they are commanded once again to be fruitful and multiply. So this entire story from the time it begins to rain until the time they leave the boat is one year and 10 days. So that's a, that's an extended period of time. In verses 20 through 22, worship immediately follows leaving the ark. The very first thing they do is worship God. Noah builds an altar and he makes burnt offerings. This comes to us from the same tradition as the story of taking seven pairs of clean animals do. So of every clean animal and of every clean bird, they're going to make a sacrifice. Um, this is why there had to be more than one pair of the clean animals because if you only had one pair of each and you sacrifice some of them, you're not going to have any more of those animals on the earth. Remember that seven becomes, it's the best number. Seven represents completion or perfection. So there were enough of the clean animals to offer them as a sacrifice, as an act of worship, and still have enough for procreation to occur. And it says that God smells the sacrifices and it, and it pleases God. Um, so the whole flood narrative shows us that God realizes he went too far. Um, Pastor Davis mentioned this in a sermon um, recently at Aniston First Methodist. This is not the way to expunge sin. Like he's never going to be able to eradicate sin from human beings who have free will. So either he's got to accept 
that some human beings will choose to reject the way God wants us to live and will choose to embrace sin and therefore evil, um, or he has to take free will away from us and make us puppets, which means we would no longer be children. Um, he wants people who freely want to be in relationship. So God promises not to do this again. I'm not going to have another reset. There's going to be another plan for how we get rid of, of sin. Um, but we also see here that he already knows that sin is going to come right back. And so at the end of the flood narrative, we have finished um, Genesis chapter 8.